Thank you, Ernie. This morning, really, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of set the table for the rest of this series. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get uh, through the, the introduction. Go figure. Uh, if, you've, if you've been part of our church, you know that introductions are my favorite part. So we're going to talk about this kind of at length before we even get into the Beatitudes. And then I'm just going to highlight a few quick things in each one of those. And I really encourage you to jump online on the Right Now Media. It's about 10, 12 minutes each session. And it'll just give you a little further depth of insight into each one of those Beatitudes, why it's important, why they matter. Uh, but I don't want to get stuck there because uh, as me and Jason were talking in a meeting today, is, or excuse me, on Thursday, uh, you could get stuck here for a long time. And so I want to try and just work our way through these three chapters. Hopefully we'll get done before Christmas. If you're visiting, yes, that's how fast I am getting through stuff. But in all seriousness, this is what we uh, as Banff Park Church want to do. We want to take very seriously the Word of God. And so we pick parts of the Word of God that we're going to work our way through. Uh, and, and originally I had thought after we finished our last series, my plan was to go into 1 John. But once we realized we didn't have Sunday school teachers uh, for the summer, Shayla and I kind of made this plan to do the, the video that we watched. And I thought, hey, let's, let's let that go through the whole summer. And then in the new year, we can come back and look at 1 John with fresh eyes. So instead, now we're going to do this passage in um, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, this is probably, as Chandler mentioned in the video, one of the more well-known parts of the Bible. Uh, and, and that's good and that's bad. It's good because it should be, because Jesus' longest kind of, well, they call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest kind of narrative of his teaching that we have blocked out for us. But it's also, it also can be a bad thing because we're so familiar with it that we sometimes don't look for the depth of what we need to find in it. And we're just like, oh yeah, I know some of these sayings, and, and I know some of these blessed are the uh, people who do such and such. But I really want us to dive into this uh, with a better context, a better understanding, and hopefully, hopefully what this does for us is, this, as Matt Chandler said, it changes us into new kinds of people. And that's really what we're going to be talking about. I'm convinced um, as we go through this, that what Jesus is talking to us about is a, a re-clarification of the old covenant law. And he, he's going to say this, I think this is Next week already, we're going to say, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So we're going to talk about what does that mean and how do we as Christians living under this, this new covenant, how do we keep the law, but with different intent and purposes, and how has God equipped us to do that? And so it's going to be a, a really interesting and a really, really challenging study because uh, there's no simple way around this. Is if you read through chapter five and you're not overwhelmed at the responsibility and, and the reality of what God's calling you to, then you probably aren't reading it correctly. To Jesus, this is a big, big deal. But I want to give you some context because there's a few things in this that, uh, that I think are important that we look at. So depending on what tradition you were raised in, you may be read through this and your pastor, your teacher, your church may be taught uh, one of kind of two extremes or probably more of you kind of landed somewhere in the middle. Uh, on the one extreme is the belief that these, while these are Jesus's words, this was not a sermon that was given, but it's a collection of his teachings over the course of his ministry that Matthew compiled together later. 
And at first glance, that sounds like, okay, that's maybe not uh, the worst thing in the world. But if you go to the end of chapter 7, that's how fast we are. We already got through it all. The very end of chapter 7, verse 28, Matthew says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. When you read it in the context that it's found, Matthew wants us to think about this as a singular event. That as Jesus was teaching that these are the things that he taught to a group of people, and verse 1 and 2 is going to be central to that, but if we don't have the context to that, verses 1 and 2 don't even seem important at all. So I think Matthew uh, is showing us that this is a group teaching. However, sometimes we have this view that this was simply a 15-minute sermon that Jesus gave. So if you read through 5, 6, and 7, you could read it through in about 12 to 15 minutes. And so if Jesus simply just brought all these crowds up to the mountainside for 12 to 15 minutes and then said, okay, go along your way, they probably would have been really, really disappointed with him. The cultural context then is rabbis brought people with them and those teachings lasted hours and some commentators speculate that this went into actually one or two days of teaching. And so we see sometimes in in the book of John, uh, you see this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people and, and there's this interesting little clarification that he makes. He says, there's all these crowds here and it's too late in the day for them to go get food, so you feed them. And so there's this kind of assumption here, they've been there a long time, and this is what has happened. This is the the very way of it, is Pharisees would gather people around, and they would teach, and they would talk. So so I want you to understand that 5, 6, and 7 are not one 15-minute sermon Jesus gave, but the highlights of things that Matthew wrote down during this teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. These are the things that were important to Matthew that we notice. Some people will argue there's, there's the Beatitudes in Luke as well, and there's only kind of four given there, and then there's four woes that are given. And so the argument kind of is like, well, let's use that to discredit Scripture. But, but I think if you're a parent, let me say it this way, have you ever only taught your kids something once and just never touched on it again? Right? Okay, you need to eat your vegetables. Good, we've had that conversation. It's done. You never need to tell them again, right? I expected more laughter there. Smonga's real good. He eats his vegetables. But we still have to remind, right? We still have to teach these same things that we taught come up over and over again. And in fact, the rest of the New Testament bears this in mind as well. Is while Paul is dealing with different churches, unique context, different church plants, he says the same thing a lot of different times. Unity becomes this huge theme for Paul in all of his letters. Or maybe you could even say it this way. I've taught the Sermon on the Mount in many different settings. I've taught it in Winnipeg in church. I've taught it in youth groups. I've taught it at Bible camps. Now I'm teaching it here. Jesus, no doubt, did the same thing, that depending on where he was at certain times with certain people, these principles and these truths would have needed to be told over and over and over again. And so Matthew's given us some highlights of this. Other people will argue that, well, Matthew was written uh, about Scholars debate this, but between 30 and 50 years, or 20 to 50 years, sorry, after Jesus' death. And so they're like, well, there's no way it could be word for word. And so if you grew up in a tradition where it was, this is word for word, then you have the need to defend that. But rather, if you step back and think, Matthew wrote this much later, and while he certainly had notes written down all over the place, undoubtedly what he is doing and what all the gospel writers are doing 
is teaching you the main things that Jesus said. In fact, one of the writers says, uh, if we were to write everything that Jesus said and did, not even the whole world could contain those books. And so lots of times in our men's Bible study, Lee will say this to us. We'll read a verse and we'll talk about it and he'll say, I wonder what else Jesus said here. Like the, con- the further context, like, like, did he clarify this? Was it something more? And so uh, that is just a reality that we have to grasp. However, also understanding that everything that we need to know about Jesus is written for us in God's word. So we can kind of wonder like, what else did Jesus say about these things? And that's okay. But everything you need for salvation, for life, for holiness, and to follow Jesus is found in scripture. So we're going to read through these over the next few weeks and months uh, as if this is just kind of one sermon, but I just want to remind you that this is over a great length of time that this happens. One other thing that I'd like to just kind of mention as well. When I was studying through the context of this, now, now you're going to hear more of this in the coming weeks. We're not really going to touch on it today. But when Jesus starts to look at the law of Moses and starts to clarify things and starts to further explain them, sometimes for us, it can be as simple as we look at it like, okay, old covenant law was this. Jesus is saying, that's not actually what it said. This is what it said. And I think when we do that, we're we're messing with the word of God and saying it doesn't say what it actually says. So we need to understand a, a greater principle here. And that actually starts in Matthew 1. What is Matthew 1? The genealogy of Jesus. So what's Matthew's point? Why does he start there? He's trying to prove to the primarily Jewish audience that he's writing to that Jesus is in the line of who? King David. That he is the Messiah that was to come. And so this Davidic king language is going to pop up all through the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also another thing that's hugely important. And I came across this from uh, Patrick Schreiner, who is a a seminary professor, I, I took a class with him in the book of Acts, and he writes uh, two articles, one on the person of uh, David in the Sermon on the Mount, and also, so Jesus is the new David, he says, but he also says that Jesus is the new Moses. And that's a concept that maybe you don't have a category for, like, what does that mean that Jesus is the new Moses? Well, remember, Matthew's writing predominantly to Jewish people, and he's writing to people who knew the law inside and out. They had memorized the law. They knew exactly how to follow it to the letter, but missed the whole understanding of everything. That's why Jesus has to clarify everything. And so Patrick Schreiner writes that Jesus is the new Moses who's to come. Moses is a central figure to any Jewish person. The the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are all written about Moses' leadership and how he was a representative for the people to connect them from them to God. Who does that sound like? That sounds like Jesus is our mediator who stands before the Father and us so that we can have someone, this go-between. When we follow the life of Moses, we see that while he did many wonderful and good things, he also made several mistakes. And in those mistakes, he disqualified himself uh, from entering into the promised land. So anyone who's reading the Pentateuch, hoping that Moses would be this, this Messiah figure, was left And Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, he writes this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses himself declared, there's one coming like me. 
like me in the sense that I'm a messianic figure, but unlike me in that he's going to have no sin. Unlike me, he's not going to choose to redefine things on his own terms. Unlike me, he is going to follow what his father has told him to do, everything. And through him, we find salvation. And so for the Jewish people to read this and understand, he is the new Moses was significant. We're going to talk about that over the coming weeks in the context of the law and how the law was first given to Moses. And then Jesus says, you're not quite fully grasping what this law is all about. So let me teach you and let me show you. So that is where we're going to start. Now, yeah, let's read here. Uh, We're going to read the last couple of verses of chapter 4, just so you see the context of who these crowds are. And then we're going to read the first 12 verses of chapter 5. It says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So when it says seeing the crowds in verse 1, we know this is a very big group of people from all over the place. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, typically we focus on these blessed statements, and and we're going to get there in a few minutes. But generally speaking, most of these are not things that we would tend to think of as, man, I'm blessed when. Usually we pray that those things don't happen to us, right? Usually we pray for comfort and security. We pray uh, for good health. We pray, and I'm not saying any of those are bad things inherently. They're not things that we shouldn't be praying for. But what I am saying is those shouldn't be the focus. So we're going to get there in a minute. But verses 1 and 2, I think, are central for us to understand the rest of it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. If you don't think that Matthew is patterned after Moses, all you got to do is read that verse. And if you were a Jewish person, what would you think of? What did Moses do in Exodus? He went up on the mountain to what? To receive the law. He went up there so that God would give him the law and then he would give it to the people as his mediator. Jesus does exactly the same. His disciples came to him. Now, this isn't just the 12. This is all those who have, at least in part, said, man, I think this is the Messiah. I want to follow after him. Now, we're going to learn later on, and I'll reference this quite a few times, but many people did fall away. Many people, as Jesus' teachings got progressively more difficult, they went, I can't can't follow this person. 
But at this point, all those who are there are kind of thinking, I think, I think he's the Messiah. Some probably certain, some kind of not sure. But this sermon has nothing about repentance. It has nothing about turn and follow me. There's an assumption here. You have followed me. You've come up to receive the law that I'm giving to you. And as I give it to you, as, as Chandler said in the video, over time, we're going to become these types of people. And so when, you read, when we read these blessed are statements, is, is ask yourself, do I fit this category? Am I poor in spirit? Am I meek? Am I merciful? Because these are the ways in which Christians should be defined because these are the ways that God is saying, I'm going to make you into this type of person and follow me. Scholars uh, talk about, uh, this is kind of some real nerdy stuff, but I think it's super interesting, is when you open up the book of Matthew and you study through it and you look at the literature, the literary design of it, what you find is that Matthew is written with five discourses, just like the Pentateuch is written with what? Five books. The Sermon on the Mount is a microcosm of that exact um, giving of the law in Exodus. And the, con- the connections continue to go on and on that Matthew actually uses wording verbatim in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch to show that he's trying to tie these things together. So let me just say it this way. Is if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you can still read this and learn who Jesus is. But if you do know the Pentateuch, if you have studied and read through Scripture, your understanding and the depth of who Jesus is will become that more to you, that much more deep. And so it's not as though you need to be a Jewish person who understood the Old Testament to grasp these things. I'm simply trying to state that the more we study Scripture, the deeper it gets and the more we understand, man, God is amazing in how he chose to write these things, how he chose to inspire the authors of these books, of, in this case, of how Jesus speaks to us. And it's not something new. He's not going to change anything. He's going to help redefine it for us so that we understand it and we can actually live it out in the way that we're supposed to. One other real interesting note. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, how does the beginning of Genesis start? How did God create? He opened his mouth. Right? So like, it seems like a strange verse. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, when else do you see that kind of wording? He opened his mouth and taught. Usually it's just, and he began to teach them. So why is that wording there? Again, Moses is, pat- or, or, sorry, Matthew is patterning this after the Pentateuch when God simply through his word spoke and the earth came into being. Spoke and animals came into being. Spoke and humanity was created. Why is this important? Well, at the end of chapter 7, again, as we just read, is the crowds are going to be astonished because he doesn't speak as one who is a normal teacher of the law. He speaks what? Anybody remember? As one who had authority. Because by the word of his mouth, truth comes. I just want us to see some of those patterns. And, and again, that might be like really kind of nerdy literary stuff where you're like, I don't know really what this has to do with, with helping me understand scripture more. All I think it does is it opens us up to realizing just how complexly written scriptures are to prove everything about it being true. I think that's fascinating. So real quick now, let's go through these Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who... 
Uh, if you watch the, the video from Chandler, he does a really good job at defining this because this word is a tricky word to kind of translate into English. What does it mean to be blessed? You could define that in all kinds of ways. And, and so it's not just the sense of, of joy or happiness or um, Chandler says it's a sense of like, congratulations. Uh, one commentator, Michael Wilkins, says it this way. It's more than a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. This is a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. So as we live the way that God has called us to, you will be blessed. That doesn't mean your bank account will be overflowing. That doesn't mean you won't have any health problems. But that means you'll find purpose and value and meaning. And even though you go through hardships and difficulties, you will know that God is with you. I just want to pick on Lorena for just a second. I was having a conversation with her, and she was just sharing some of the tough things going on. And, and though all those tough things are serious, she kept saying, but I know God has purpose and plan. God is at work in the mess. And I just want to remind you of that this morning. Is no matter how difficult it might seem right now, no matter how things aren't going the way that you expected, that you're not receiving the blessings that you assume should come to you, is that God is at work. God has plan and purpose for your life. And it's not just to make your life easy. It's to make your life holy. It's to make you a vessel to shine Jesus through your community that others would see you and go, this this person loves Jesus. I need Jesus. That's what it's for. And so this are the, these are the blessings that come to us. Now, before we read them, one other thing. I know, sorry, I've said that probably five times already. One other thing to realize here is we're going to define all of these blessings, not simply by the here and now, but the here and now and the yet to come. So the fancy way to say that is it's inaugurated eschatology. So in an inaugurated eschatological sense, there's already truth to this, but it's not yet complete. It hasn't yet found uh, consummation of these things. And so a, a verse that you know very well, I'm sure, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. So what does that mean? More stuff here and now? Maybe. It might mean a little bit of that. But more so, it's yes, some now, but ultimately. When we look to eternity, when we're face to face with Jesus, all the things that we have already seen and hoped for are going to be consummated and, and finalized. The writer of the Hebrews talks about it that way when he says these people believed in faith what was coming and they welcomed it from a distance, but they didn't see it in its fulfillment. Abraham believed God that God was going to make a great nation of him. He didn't actually see that great nation beyond very many people, but he believed that God was going to be faithful to what he did. And so the same is true of these things is as we study through them, some of it is true now, but the bigger piece is yet in eternity. And so if you're thinking to yourself that some of these don't feel like they're very true in your moment right now, is remember, that's not the fuller picture. The fuller picture is at the end. So let's start with the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. This isn't really something we desire, is it? 
typically speaking. This isn't something that we look at and we go, man, I, I wish I was poor in spirit. I'm going to quote a commentator named Leon Morris several times here, uh, not because he's the only commentator I read this week, but because he seemed to have a better way of, or uh, to me anyway, a more clear and concise way of saying things, just, just so helpful. So he says this. He says, this group of people understand something, namely that they cannot bring anything to God. The poor in spirit in this sense of this beatitude are those who recognize that they are completely and utterly destitute in the realm of the spirit. They recognize their lack of spiritual resources and therefore their complete dependence on God. If we think of it in that context, if you're poor in spirit, that's a wonderful thing. Because you recognize that you have no control. You have no power for your own salvation. It comes only through the blood of Jesus. In your own life right now, I'm sure all of us are trying to hold on to a sense of control in various areas. And God's simply saying to us, would you let go? Would you let me lead you? Would you let me guide you and direct you? And it might not go where you want it to go. But I'm at work. Trust me. Follow me. And so when you become poor in spirit, when you go, God, I have nothing of myself to offer you except the salvation that you have offered to me, then we can't approach God with any kind of arrogance, can we? We won't go to God thinking, man, I deserve or I should get. What we'll go to God with is an overwhelming sense of I don't deserve your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. I don't deserve anything good. The only thing I deserve is death. So when we're poor in spirit, it doesn't mean we're, we're standing around moping about how awful we are. The, the great hymn, Amazing Grace, is not a downer. It's great news, isn't it? It's a realization how, how filthy and wretched we are, and yet how desperately God loves us and has sent Jesus to the cross so that we might find salvation. There's no greater news than that. So friends, blessed are you when you are poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're being poor in spirit now might not seem like it'll pay off right now, but it will pay off in eternity. And in fact, the last blessed statement, he's also going to answer with the same way, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then all the other ones in the middle here are kind of other aspects of that. But that's another reason why we look at it with inaugurated eschatology, because they're like bookends stating that blessed are you, it's going to come to fruition in eternity. Some of this other stuff is available here and now. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, we don't think of uh, mourning as a very helpful thing very often. Blessed are you when you mourn. Why, why would you mourn? Why do we typically mourn? We've lost someone that we loved, that we cared for. Our community is going through that right now. And many of you are dealing with those types of situations from whether that's, you know, elderly family members who are passing away or whether it's a horrible accident that occurs or uh, an illness that has come upon you and your mortality seems very real to you all of a sudden. Whatever it might be, Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you mourn. Well, Matt Chandler, I'm, I'm stealing, you're going to see this if you watch this, but he says this so beautifully. He says, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize my own insufficiencies. There is a mourning for that. And yet there is such tremendous hope 
because I know that Jesus is at work in me. But if you compare your life to other people, you end up being self-righteous. Don't despise conviction. Mourning of sin is born of conviction, and conviction is inviting us into the life that Christ has brought to you and I. Blessed are you when you mourn. When you mourn over what? Your sin. Because you recognize just how far apart from God you are. And yet, then the good news, if you are aware of that, if you understand that and you mourn that, you will receive what? Comfort. Because the blood of Jesus has been shed for you that you might have eternity with Christ in heaven. If you would only turn and submit to his rule. And so that's great, great news. And so mourning leads to something greater. And I would say for, for us as Christians, if the loved one that you know has passed on, yes, you mourn in a, in a physical sense, but you also mourn with hope, recognizing that one day you will be reunited with Jesus. Again, there's no greater hope for those that we have loved that have gone before us. And this is why it's so important that we share the love of Jesus with them. Leon Morris warns us, he says, there's actually, while this is, a, is a, a hopeful clause, there's also a warning in this. He says, because people do not grieve over what is wrong in themselves, they do not repent. And because they do not grieve over what is wrong, they share with others in the communities in which they live, they take few steps to set things right. And so it's a wonderful thing when you receive conviction from the Holy Spirit. Because he's showing you, this is not who I've created you to be. I want you to be something so much greater, so much better. He wants to show us what it means to live a life for him and not for ourselves. And so mourning brings us into that place. Blessed are the meek. This isn't a word we typically use today, and it's not something that we really talk about. But if you just need one further example of Matthew tying this back to the book of Moses or to the Pentateuch, is this, is there's two people in all of Scripture who are defined as meek. And who are they? Jesus and Moses. That's it. No other character in the Bible is talked about as being meek. And yet, if we think of meek as weak, then we're misunderstanding everything because Moses was this great Jewish person of faith, this, this wonderful leader, this amazing man. And then, of course, Jesus as the Messiah. And if these are the only two that are to be told about as, or being talked about as meek, shouldn't we desire those same qualities? So let's define it. What is meekness? Well, Chandler says this, a follower of Jesus did not aggressively insist on, its, on his own rights, but displays genuine humility. Self-assertion is never a Christian value. Rather, it is, a Christ, or it is Christian to be busy in lowly service and to refuse to engage in the conduct that merely advances one's personal aims. I want to read that last sentence again because that one hit me real hard this week. It is Christian to be busy in lowly service and to refuse to engage in the conduct that merely advances one's personal aims. To be meek means you're strong, but you don't need to be told you're strong. You're aware of that. You're not looking for that affirmation. You're not living in an insecurity of your own strength. You're recognizing that you are strong because you are strong in Christ and you use your strength to serve others, not yourself. And that's really what Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew? Later on. He says, I didn't come to be served, but what? 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while me and you can't give our lives for the sake of another, because we are not perfect like Jesus was, we are called to sacrificially serve one another. And I think you need to be meek to that. So what's the promise? The promise is that you will inherit the earth. Again, think eschatologically. You will inherit the earth. You will receive that new heavens and that new earth, that forever relationship with Jesus in eternity. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. There's a really poignant metaphor there, isn't there? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you want to be standing in a right relationship with God more than you want food or drink? Do you recognize you need to be in right relationship with God far more than you need food to eat or water to drink? Jesus talks about this in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Right? And he says, you, you, you want water so that you can physically live. I offer you something that's spiritual that will feed you for forever. And she doesn't quite understand. And she goes like, like, well, could you give me this so that I don't have to come back here every day? I don't want to have to keep making this journey. As Jesus clarifies further, is this is not a physical thing. Jesus will say it elsewhere where he hasn't received any food, but he'll say, I've been given the food that my father has given me to eat. And they're like, did, and actually it's written really interesting. Did, did someone bring him food that we don't know about? It's like the disciples didn't get it yet. Is that Jesus relied not on the physical, but on the spiritual. Um, Richard Wombrandt, anybody know that name? You should go check out some of his books. Really, really interesting man. He uh, endured Nazi persecution in a concentration camp. And I forget the exact period of time. I think it was just over a week, but he was thrown out in the cold with no food and no water to die. And he wouldn't die. Because God had different plans for him. God's capable of everything. You don't need the physical. What you need is the spiritual. Now, yes, you do need physical. I'm not trying to say, just go home and don't eat and don't drink and only read Bible and only pray. And that, that's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point that I'm trying to make is just as you go home and go, man, I need to eat so that I can have enough energy to go to work and I need to drink so that I can actually accomplish the things that I need to, you need that much more your spiritual life that you would run after Jesus. Do you hunger and thirst? So what's the promise for those? They shall be satisfied. Simple way of saying it is this, is there's nothing the world can give you that will give you any lasting satisfaction. It'll always leave you wanting more, right? How many times have you heard, well, well if, I just, if I just have this amount of money in my bank account, then I'll be good. Has anyone ever done that and then stopped? I don't need it anymore. We always run after more. We love the things that the world gives us, but it doesn't satisfy us. It causes us to go, man, I need it more and more. And, and we just end with this like desperation almost. Whereas when you come face to face with Jesus and you receive his forgiveness, you will be satisfied because you'll know that nothing in the world can compete with that. Blessed are those who uh, show mercy. This one maybe makes uh, a little bit more sense. The merciful, right? You show mercy and so others will what? Typically. Will they be mean to you back? Okay, maybe. But it's a general truth, right? A general proverb that if you are merciful to others, generally speaking, you will be merciful. People will give you mercy back to yourself. 
But again, think of this not in a sense of here and now, but in the inaugurated eschatological sense, is you will receive mercy when? At the coming of Christ. That doesn't mean that as long as you're merciful to some, then Jesus will be merciful to you so you can earn your salvation. Don't hear that. That's not what it's saying. Again, as Chandler said, over the course of time, we will become people like this. We will become people who are merciful to others, even if we deem they don't deserve it. And hopefully, we'll get to that place where it's not about what we deem they deserve or don't deserve. We'll simply just become people who are merciful. The pure in heart is next. Blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus is actually going to, I'm going to talk about this one more coming weeks, maybe not directly, but more indirectly, because to Jesus, a pure heart is essential for a right relationship with God. But as the video in 1 John showed us, is how do we have a pure heart? How can we stand before God and go, man, my heart is pure before you? Only when we're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're getting a little spoiler alert for the next few weeks. But that's the reality of it, is we can only be pure in heart when we let go of the things that we want and desire and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. The same that Jesus said. The more we're aware of what God is doing in our heart, the more we will change. There's, there's two aspects to this. And, and this sometimes gets confused in Scripture because it's, it's this already but not yet thing, this inaugurated eschatology, is what does sanctification mean? Anybody know? A right standing before God, right? So we're sanctified. That means we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And so God doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Jesus' sacrifice covering us. And so positionally, we are sanctified. But also scripture talks about you are being sanctified. And so there's this ongoing word. It's already happened, but it's not yet completed. Is you stand positionally before God as a pure heart, but God's also creating in you more and more a pure heart as you desire to follow him more. See, the, the challenge with reading scripture sometimes is you want to go, did this already happen or is it yet to happen? And a lot of times the answer is what? Yes. Both and. And we don't really like that. We like really defined boxes where we can put things in. And scripture is not that simple simply because God is not that simple. God is a very complex being, and he is at work in our hearts, and so he's positionally made us sanctified, but he's also ongoing, making us sanctified. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Notice it doesn't say the peacekeepers. I never noticed that. I probably should have, but I never noticed that. When I just thought of that, I immediately thought peacekeeper, those who keep the peace. And then, you know, I think of certain people in my life who are just very peaceful people and they, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to make things uncomfortable. They'll let others get their way sometimes for the sake of, because they just don't want to make it uncomfortable. And I think of them as peacekeepers, but it says peacemakers. So again, Leon Morris says this, those, are pe- sorry, those who make peace are fulfilling what membership in the family really means. And this is something that all the members of the family must aspire to. A peacemaker is somebody who sees a problem and goes to fix that problem and create peace where there was strife. Are we peacemakers? I don't know. In today's world, it's pretty easy to just step back and just be like, man, that's too volatile. I can't touch that. I can't fix that. I can't deal with that. Okay, well, the truth is you can't fix it. You're right. But who can? The Holy Spirit can fix that. 
And so are we willing to say, God, how, do, how are you calling me to get involved in the mess here? And I love that Leon Morris points out it's in a family sense because it calls them for they, sorry, for they are sons of God. You become family with God. When your family is hurting, you're far more likely to, even though it's messy, get in there and try and fix that. In fact, sometimes we call it little interventions with our family, right? We see things that are not good and that are not right or that are hurting our family members. And we say, despite how difficult this next hour or week or months are going to be, we're going to enter into this mess to try and bring peace. Because that's what family does. And if you're a son or a daughter of the king, then that's what you do. Last one. Blessed are you, sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. Again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a tough one for us in our culture, isn't it? Because we're trying to do everything we can to not get persecuted. We're fighting for our rights left, right, and center. And maybe we're forgetting a little bit of what Jesus says here. Now, it's not about being persecuted um, because you're a jerk. (laughs) That's not what it's about. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or 1 Peter 3.16, Peter describes it this way. He says, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Right, so Peter's desire is that you live such uh, lives that represent God so well that when people make accusations against you, that people go, no, they wouldn't do that. That person that you're accusing, they, they don't live that way. I know that they don't. I see how they live. Remember when we were studying through Daniel about a year ago, what was the only thing they could find fault at Daniel? The only thing they could find fault was we've we got to make a law so that he can't pray because we can't find anything else about him that will merit any punishment. Is that's, that's the kind of idea here. Is blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Our world is becoming more, our culture, I should say, is becoming more and more anti-Christian. And when we look around the world, we see, and, and Ernie mentioned this, and he's mentioned this often, is there's persecution in so many other parts of the world. And we see that they can't meet together. They can't worship together. They can't walk down the street with a Bible without being persecuted. And yet, we want to say, well, we should have all our rights and our freedoms. Now, don't get me wrong. I love that I live in a place where we have these rights and freedoms. And we're going to use them as best as we can for everything. But they're not the is-all, end-all. They're not the goal. Jesus is the goal. And if the government decides that, man, we don't, we don't want churches to be charitable organizations anymore, we're going to strip them of their charitable status. That's a very real possibility. Are we still going to give to the work of the kingdom because we think it's right rather than we get a tax receipt? When they tell us that you can't meet in person, are we going to, like our brothers and sisters figure in other parts of the world, are we going to figure out ways in which we can still gather together, that we can worship together, and that we can serve one another? This one is so, I think, difficult that Jesus clarifies it twice. First, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. But then there's an assumption that all of us will be at some point in some way. And so in verse 11, he makes it personal. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when you receive persecution against you because you're doing what is right. 
And then he gives the answer to that question. Why, why should that be a blessing? Well, be glad for your reward is great where? In heaven. Again, inaugurated eschatology. These things are pointing towards the day when there will be no sin and no pain and no tears and no sadness. There'll only be us and Christ. That's what we live for. And so if we're going to get persecuted for it, and if our lives are going to be at danger, if we're going to risk even sacrificing ourselves for the gospel, then that's actually great news, right? We say it all the time. Paul said what? To live is Christ and to die is it's actually better to die because you get to go be with Christ. And that doesn't mean you should go look to die, right? Don't, don't overextend what he's saying, but understand the comparison that he's making. Do we value our spiritual lives and do we value our relationship with God as greater than the things that the world has to offer us? But he also says this, Rejoice and be glad for your greatest reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's also that reminder to us, you're not alone in this persecution. You're not alone. So they persecuted the prophets. So they persecuted those who came before you. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. In our men's group, we've been talking about the book of John. And the Pharisees are looking back in the Old Testament and, and like saying, the prophets belong to us. They're so proud of their prophets because of all the good things they did. But what did the Jewish people do to their prophets when they were prophesying? They killed them. We don't like the message you're giving us. We want good news. We don't want to be told to repent. And yet the Pharisees don't even recognize how miserably they treated the prophets. And then they treat Jesus the same way. And you can see this cycle happening. And you look at this and you go, how could we miss it? You and I, at some point, in some way, and and I should be careful how I say this because many of you are not from this country. And perhaps you come from a country where persecution is very real. Here in this part of the world right now, we're seeing some of these things start to come to pass. Are we going to view them with an inaugurated eschatology of recognizing that as persecution comes, first of all, Jesus said it would. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But second, that it gives us an opportunity to represent Christ. We have a sign that periodically gets put up in our house and it says this. You will never influence the world by trying to be like it. Now I understand country singers have taken that and written a song and ruined the meaning of that. As with all country music. Sorry, that was too far. Um, You'll never try and influence the world if you try to be like it. Is there's good news when the world becomes very anti-Christian? It means we look very different than the world. That means that we can make an incredible influence. Because they look at us and they go, why do you live that way? Why do you talk that way? Why do you give? Why do you serve? Why do you do these things? They don't make sense and we can go, we do it for Jesus. We do it so that he would receive glory and honor. And in living in this type of a life, as Christ gives us the strength, as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, we become these type of people. And frankly, these type of people don't look like normal types of people. Praise the Lord for that. Then the world will see it. If we jump too far ahead, no, we won't jump too far ahead. Jesus is going to talk very good, very positive, about living a life that looks different than the world. 
And so as you, I, I hope, as you go and you study these Beatitudes through on that Right Now Media series, you'll get far more insight into each one of them. But simply to wrap it up with this. If you read these things and you don't see yourselves in these things, then you probably need to ask yourself a question. Am I following Jesus by how I'm living? Because this is what Jesus has called me to. And over the coming weeks and months as we deal with salt and light and the fulfillment of the law and anger and lust and divorce and all these things, Jesus is going to call us to some very difficult things. But he's also going to equip us with the Holy Spirit to be able to do these things that he's calling us to do. Remember that as you come to Christ, God is gradually and hopefully more speedily sometimes equipping and changing you into becoming a new type of human, a new type of person, that your life would be about Jesus, not about the world, so that others would see him and that they would glorify him. Let's pray, and then we're going to shift and take communion together. God, thank you for these passages. And God, thank you for scholars who study scripture so in depth that they can make these parallels, that they can see these connections that sometimes we don't see. God, as we look at the law and as we look at the new covenant, may we understand the new covenant in the way that Matthew's trying to show us. May we not redefine it on our own terms. May we not throw it out and and act like somehow it's irrelevant. But may we read it for the way you have intended us to read it. God, thank you that you have given us and equipped us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be these types of people and in a world that is becoming far more anti-Christian. And so God, would you give us opportunities to live these Beatitudes out so that people would see us not for our own sake, but that they would see us and recognize that there's something greater at work and that we would have opportunities to share with others about who Jesus is. God, blessed are we when we are people who live this way. Amen. If you just want to flip ahead to 1 Corinthians, once a month in our church tradition here, we eat of the Lord's Supper together and we just kind of recenter ourselves, refocus ourselves on the truth of the gospel and of the cross. And so if you're visiting with us this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, then by all means, please participate with us. Um, We believe this is a global thing, not a local church thing. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we encourage you to do that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then, then eating and drinking of this uh, has no bearing on you. And so I just encourage you to let it pass by. There's no judgment or condemnation whatsoever about that. We just want it to have meaning and value. But that said, if you aren't a follower of Jesus and, and, and through the text this morning or through what God has been doing in your heart, you're kind of wondering, man, maybe I need to know more about this Jesus. Please come find us. We would love to talk to you about Jesus and what he means, who he is. So let's read together. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul writes this for us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we, in the next weeks, move ahead into recognizing that the only reason that we can have relationship with God is through the blood of Jesus, we're going to celebrate that. Hopefully, in humility, we're going to be reminded that there's nothing that I can do to earn salvation. That I can look at all I want at my neighbors and coworkers and family and friends and go, well, there's people that are worse than me, so I should be good. We can do that all we want, or we can read through these scripture verses and we can see that it's only through the blood of Jesus that I'm sanctified. And it's only through the Holy Spirit of God that I'm continuing to be sanctified. And so I'm going to invite Lee up, and as Lee and I pass these things out to you, we'll have some music playing quietly. And I just want you to do exactly what it says in here, to examine your own heart and ask, am I this type of person, this blessed be type of person? Is this how I'm living? Is this what I'm trying to be? And of course, all of us, we know we fall short. And so I want us to, in our own hearts and our minds, you know, confess and work through some of those things. But then also we're going to praise the Lord that through the blood of Jesus, there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's mercy. So let me pray for the bread and then Lee and I will hand that out to you. And and when everyone has it, we'll come back together and we'll eat together. So let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. That you sent Jesus to the cross, that Jesus willingly gave up of his life so that we might have forgiveness, that we might have eternity with you, that you have given us meaning and purpose, not not just to look towards heaven with eternity in mind, but also that you've given us the spirit for here and now that we might show others the love and the mercy of Jesus. So God, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross, that his body was broken for us. So in these few moments of quiet together, Would we examine our hearts and would we ask, am I living a life that honors you and that is for you? That we would work on the areas in our hearts that need to be worked on and that that we would celebrate that you are a God of grace and forgiveness and that you are a God who is merciful. Thank you for Jesus' body broken for us. Amen.